I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me, if you like, at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I make some random observations from the past week. I recommend a brilliant book I've read recently on the zero-sum logic that shapes our racial and political imaginations, and I talk about Paul's pastoral ministry and how that might shape contemporary conceptions of ministry in local churches. So just a handful of observations and thoughts from the past week. Uh, the other day, my copies of my Mark commentary arrived, and that was huge. I was so excited uh, to see it finally in print, to hold it in my own hands. Uh, this project took me a long time, longer than uh, the publisher and editors probably wanted, but they were very patient, very gracious, um, the folks at Zonervan Academic and the editors of the Story of God uh, commentary series. Um, it took me about, I don't even know, seven or eight years to write it and uh, in fits and starts. And uh, over the over a period of a couple of years, I banged most of it out. And I was so grateful for uh, the opportunity to do this project. I'm grateful for the editors for thinking of me. And I thoroughly enjoyed the study of Mark. As I mentioned before, in so many ways, it was so supremely enlightening uh, but also very unsettling as I've come to the conviction that Mark is written to confront complacent churches, uh, churches that know the teaching of Jesus and know how they're supposed to be embodying it through corporate practices, but just aren't doing it. And um, I'm grateful for that enlightening, challenging, unsettling, disorienting um, journey through Mark. And um, it's sort of come about where I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite gospel, but Mark is my favorite. I am just in love with it. I don't know that I'll get the opportunity to uh, plow through another gospel like I did with Mark. Uh, I'd love it if I had that opportunity. My next big project is going to involve uh, Romans for the foreseeable future, and I am thrilled about that. Anyway, check out the Mark commentary wherever you, um, at any independent bookstore, where you purchase your books and uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, over the past week, I have been enjoying a wide range of music. Took a long, I did a bunch of traveling over the past week and uh, even over Saturday, took a road trip over to Detroit and um, went back and listened to uh, Rural Alberta Advantage, their album Hometowns. It just, it's one of those albums that hangs together as just a wonderful, complete album. Loved it. Um, it's fun to revisit. Same is true with one of my all-time favorites, The Charlatans. Uh, when they originally came out, they were called Charlatans UK. Then they just changed their names, their name to Charlatans. And uh, their album that came out in the late 80s, 1989, I believe, uh, their album Some Friendly. And back when I was in high school, that I just wore that thing out. And to go back and listen to the entire album all the way through, just you know, on a gorgeous 
sunny day on Saturday driving across the state. Just so good. So good. Uh, the Charlatans were sort of a part of the the Manchester sound that was going on in the late 80s that came over to the States, uh, among some folks anyway. Uh, to my mind, Stone Roses are sort of the supreme expression of that sound. And um, listened to that album a lot this past week, which is no surprise. But those that came out in the late 80s, goodness, man, I just wore those out. Loved them. And uh, I've enjoyed an eclectic range of some other stuff. Clap your hands and say, yeah. Went back to some old Lou Reed and some Iggy Pop. And of course, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. But that's no surprise. Uh, I heard from somebody this past week who has um, a pretty intense interest in the Pittsburgh Pirates and uh, giving me a little bit of crap about uh, projected win totals for the Cubs this year and how it is that the Cubs are not projected to do all that well. And that is no surprise. Cubs have sort of gone into fire sale mode and dumping a bunch of players. Uh, I don't know. Are they going to rebuild? I don't know. For the championship run starting in the early 2010s that culminated in the World Series uh, triumph in 2016, they were built to make deep runs a number of times. And really, aside from the deep run that was unexpected in 2015 and the World Series championship in 2016, they just really disappointed. And I don't know, the last number of playoff runs they've had, the bats have just died. I honestly don't know how they've not switched hitting coaches in the last year or so because with all the firepower they've had, uh, it's just been heartbreaking and supremely disappointed. Not really heartbreaking because over the last couple of years, in the final six to seven weeks of each season, you can just tell they were deflated um, and things were just not going to go well. So uh, it's going to be a rough couple of years. And I... I've made my peace with it. But just to say, Austin, uh, Cubs are projected to win about just under 80 games. Uh, the Pirates are projected to win just under 60. So as it looks, it looks like there's going to be a little bit of a battle uh, for seller-dweller position in the National League Central, and it's going to be a brutal year. It's going to be a rough year for Pirates fans like my friend Todd, it's gonna be it's gonna be a rough year for uh, Cubs fans, um, but the way that I've come to see it as an adult, it's always a good year for baseball fans. So um, I know for myself, I really am looking forward to baseball getting underway in earnest. Uh, we have a single A minor league club for the Detroit Tigers here in West Michigan, the West Michigan Whitecaps. And I'm looking forward to just getting out to a bunch of games on spring and summer evenings and afternoons. Uh, Saturday afternoons, Sunday afternoons, and a uh, big old bag of peanuts, and uh, just enjoying all the, the sounds of baseball. Summer is around the corner. I can feel it. Although in March in West Michigan, you can feel it maybe one out of every three days where it feels like spring is on the way. And then as soon as it does, there's snow in the forecast like there is for tonight. That's just what it means to live in West Michigan, I guess. Uh, I wanted to make one uh, note. I was thinking about this over the past couple of days after my episode last week. 
on white evangelicals and the politics of abortion. And nobody asked me about this, and that's that's fine. I just had been thinking a lot about it. And it was one thing I sort of wanted to add to the previous discussion. And just to note why I distinguished white evangelicals from just evangelicals. And uh, there's a lot to say about this. Um, you know, for the most part, evangelicalism is indistinguishable from white evangelicalism. Uh, because, as I may have mentioned before, evangelical culture over the last uh, century or so was intentionally constructed and cultivated to be a white culture. In the developing networks uh, that were going on in the 1910s and 20s, evangelical, or I should say denominational leaders, started forging relationships of what became eventually became evangelical culture in America. And those denominational leaders were all white. And when black denominational leaders began to contact them and you know, word started getting out about these forming uh, networks of relationships across denominations, black uh, denominational leaders requested uh, to be involved and they were intentionally shut out. So at the beginning of what has become American evangelicalism, it was intentionally white and it was a segregated movement. And over the decades, uh, the rest of the decades of the 20th century and over the last 20 years, uh, it's been a purposefully cultivated white culture. And uh, so there's a sense in which, you know, to, to say white evangelicals and evangelicalism is really, those are basically synonymous. However, uh, as Soon Chan Ra and some others have noted, evangelicalism is diversifying as it has been across the globe for some time. And uh, the center of gravity in the evangelical movement is shifting to other parts of the world. Of course, uh, we, lots of American evangelicals may be uh, completely blind to uh, that developing phenomenon. So it is diversifying. Uh, but just to say, one thing that had always puzzled me uh, was how it is that um, black evangelicals or black Orthodox Christians who were just warmly um, pious and had the same general piety as white evangelicals and the same theology as white evangelicals, one thing that always puzzled me is why black Christians in America had voting habits and sort of party uh, tendencies, you know, uh, party affiliation tendencies that were so strikingly different from white evangelicals. Like, how is it that people that we all consider brothers and sisters in Christ, how is it that they see politics so dramatically differently? Like, don't black Christians care about abortion? Don't they care about the unborn? Uh, I would have thought uh, some years ago. And that is sort of the, uh, the lay of the land that I was trying to get at in the previous episode. Um, and I've come to see that the reason that there's such divergent voting patterns between black Christians and white Christians is that while white Christians are so singularly focused, white evangelicals are so singularly focused on uh, abortion rights and rights for LGBTQ people, um, black Christians can see very clearly what Republican lawmakers are up to, that they are taking great pains and making every effort to roll back 
all of the gains that black people in America have enjoyed be, uh, in light of the civil rights movement. They see it. They know it. They feel it. They sense it. They see the cost to their communities. And all of those, because of the, uh, the segregated character of American society, all of those dynamics are obscured from view from white evangelical people in America. We, we don't see it. We don't see how it is that our neighbors um, have, their, have had their rights stripped. We don't see how our neighbors um, have just countless obstacles thrown in their way when it comes to voting. And even now, Republican legislatures across the country have introduced bills, uh, around 500 was the last number that I saw, to limit um, opportunities to vote uh, on the part of black people. And uh, as we'll talk about later, Heather McGee would say, they limit the voting privileges and rights um, of poor white people as well. So black people in America have a keen eye uh, to all the injustices that um, sort of lace the structures of American culture. And white evangelical people are completely blind to all that. Uh, so we may have American evangelicals, white evangelicals, may have a variety of rationales for why that's the case. Uh, but I think that all of those rationales are uninformed by the very people who are uh, enduring hardships themselves. So I think that we would be, we would do very well to get into uh, extended conversation with people that we consider brothers and sisters in Christ and to understand their lives and the ways that policies affect life in their communities. Um, so anyway, just to say, I distinguished white evangelicals in the last episode because of that whole divergence. I want to tell you about a book. I already mentioned it in the previous episode because I just enjoyed it so much and found it immensely enlightening. It's by Heather McGee and it's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It's published by One World an imprint of Random House for those who care about such things. I certainly do. There's so much to say about this brilliant, wonderful, and eye-opening book. But what I loved about it is that McGee goes right to the heart of what is corrupt about the collective American imagination, the zero-sum logic. That is the deep-seated conviction that when other groups benefit, that's a loss for my group or when a public good is spread abroad so that other groups enjoy it, I lose. Or to be more specific, in accordance with McGee's overall point, when a public policy is seen to benefit black and brown people along with immigrants, white people see that as somehow costing them. At the heart of this zero-sum logic is race, racism, and the white supremacy that has morphed and transformed over the centuries and decades, but still runs through our collective imagination just as strongly as ever. And politicians and wealthy interests have fomented this underlying impulse to turn Americans against each other and have done so to come up with public policies that end up hurting everyone, white people and non-white people. Now, I'm very interested in this because of how the biblical narrative has shaped my conception 
of politics, social policy, and economics. I've come to see that scripture is supposed to shape our political and economic imagination to orient us to envision life within a world of plenty, a world in which there are far more resources than we all need. That's the essence of resurrection politics. The God who brings life from the dead and who sent his spirit to dwell among us brings with his kingdom presence an order of superabundant flourishing, a form of existence in which there's more than enough for all of us to enjoy. This is what is going on in the feeding miracles in the Gospels. Whereas disciples' imaginations and those of churches now are shaped in worldly ways in which we only imagine a world of limited goods, God can bring forth plenty from apparently meager resources. To live with the grain of creation is to inhabit a world in which we do not imagine zero-sum calculations. Only distorted and corrupted imaginations see things that way. By the way, all this was on full display in the previous few elections, and you could hear it when evangelicals spoke about the previous president as someone who was, quote-unquote, fighting for us. What they meant was that his administration was committed to rolling back the civil rights of LGBTQ plus people, along with those of immigrants and people of color. That's a clear instance of the zero-sum logic. Our rights are protected when yours are taken away. Or we can only imagine a life of flourishing in this country when your rights are limited. And of course, all of this flies under the banner of family values or traditional Christian values. To my mind, that's a failure to grasp what it means to be Christian. But for McGee, that's a surrender of the promise of America. In that sense, my concerns are slightly different from McGee's, but her analysis and storytelling are just brilliant. She's also a great writer, and I just love good writing, which is rare. McGee's book describes how the zero-sum calculation pervades our national political and economic vision afflicting the imagination, especially of white people in America, who tend to see the presence of people of color as a threat to their status, as if racial groups are in direct competition with each other, as if progress for one group is an automatic threat to another. And this threat across so many public policy issues, housing, voting, public health, education, this threat is so menacing that white people will resist policies that could benefit them just as they would benefit people of color. These are the very same dynamics that are up and running in the long-standing national debates over national health care. McGee goes through the sorts of rhetoric many of us have heard that masks this ugly reality. And in that sense, this book is revelatory. The initial story McGee recounts is how racism drained public swimming pools. Beginning in the 1920s, Towns and cities across the country began building big, beautiful, elaborate public swimming pools. With the rise of the New Deal and the public works that flowed from that in the 1930s, hundreds more were built, with the result that there were thousands spread across the country. The accumulated wealth and prosperity of the nation were on full display with the public enjoyment of this public good. Until black people started showing up. Rather than integrate their public swimming pools, cities and towns decided to drain them or fill them in with concrete. Rather than enjoy a public good, white people began during that era 
to build swimming pools in their backyards, and white people formed private clubs where they could exclude black people. This, of course, also shut out loads of poorer white people who couldn't afford to join private clubs or to build their own backyard pools. That pattern of refusing to enjoy public goods because black people were also enjoying them has been replicated across so many areas of American life. This us versus them corruption of our imaginations has costs for all of us. It hurts our neighbors and it hurts ourselves. This is the root idea that McGee exposes. The average white person sees racism as a zero-sum game. There's an us and there's a them. What's good for them must be bad for us. If things are getting better for them, it must be at the expense of white people. I think McGee's analysis and the long national story she tells are so vital for everyone to grasp. But for Christian people who should be intensely concerned with being good neighbors and inhabiting the resurrection-oriented and life-giving political regime called the kingdom of God, it's a great place to start to name and identify the perverted notions that have been handed down to us and that distort our way of seeing the world and seeing one another. Only then can we begin to engage that process that Paul calls us to, the renewing of our minds and the reordering of our community lives. The book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, and it's by Heather McGee. Get it from an independent bookstore. So I wanted to talk today about really the subject of my book, Power and Weakness, and that is um, how Paul's ministry was radically transformed. And uh, the reason why I want to talk about this is that uh, my friend Nijay Gupta, who is a uh, world-class New Testament scholar, great guy, uh, very active on social media, and uh, he asked, uh, he invited me uh, to write up a brief piece of about a thousand words or so. Uh, so that he could highlight my book and um, help to get the word out about it. And so the last couple of days, I've been thinking about that and putting that together uh, for him. And this has been occupying my thoughts. And uh, as I've said a number of times before, this podcast is for me, for me to bring my thoughts together. And so I'm using it for my own purposes. I've got to write something up for his blog, or I should say I have the pleasure and privilege of writing something up for his blog. And um, this will be an opportunity for me to put some things together, to bring some of this all together. And um, I love talking about uh, the transformation of Paul's ministry uh, because that very transformation sort of is a template for so many of our lives, for our lives as Christian people. Paul talks about himself and his pursuit of having a life shaped by the cross in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, uh, as being worthy of imitation. He exhorts the Corinthians to imitate him as he, as he is imitating Christ. So the implications are very wide-ranging uh, for all of us. And I think that this is just such a fun thing to talk about because it's so countercultural, and um, because it is the way of life. It is the way to life. And it's it's the way of, of weakness and surrender and embrace of the other. And uh, I think it's 
it's sort of Paul's take on uh, Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount when he goes through the list of Beatitudes. Um, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, the gentle, uh, people who take their place alongside others and who don't sort of lift themselves up above others or who seek power or coercion or control or domination. And all those pursuits are just pervasive in our culture. And um, they sort of lace themselves throughout the phenomenon, the tragic phenomenon that we know uh, as toxic masculinity. Kristen Dumais does a great job of explicating all of that in her book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, as does uh, Beth Allison Barr in her upcoming book, uh, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. I believe I've got that title right. Uh, look out for that one coming out. It is just going to be every bit as enlightening and transformational as uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Both of those books together are just a masterclass, not only in brilliant writing, uh, but in uh, cultural analysis and you know lifting up the hood on white evangelical culture, militancy, and toxic masculinity, exposing the way uh, to something better, something more life-giving. And um, the way that Paul conceived of his ministry runs completely along the grain of those works, uh, that whole notion of weakness and um, taking our place alongside brothers and sisters and not seeking for power. I've really loved uh, thinking about this probably over the last 15 years or so. Uh, about 20 years ago, when I started my PhD study, I uh, focused on Ephesians. And uh, when I came to uh, Ephesians 3, where Paul talks about his life, he gets autobiographical uh, for about 13 or 14 verses or so of chapter 3. He really explicates there this whole notion of cruciformity and how he interpreted his imprisonment through that lens. And all of that is Paul's way of drawing out how the cross has claimed his life, how the cross has claimed and reconfigured his entire pursuit and the way he carries out his apostleship that leading to an interpretation of his incarceration. And uh, the cross is the mode of triumph of God. God triumphs in Christ through the cross. And uh, my whole dissertation was all about how Ephesians 1.20 to 2.22 sort of function as uh, the foundation or the backdrop for all of Ephesians, listing, uh, sort of talking about the triumph of God in Christ at the end of chapter one, and then throughout chapter two, talking about the ways that God has triumphed. And the ways that he has triumphed are always through the cross as he is transforming community lives and is healing eth uh, ethnic division and ethnic conflict in Christ. So God triumphs in Christ through the cross. So when Paul starts talking about uh, himself autobiographically in chapter three, He's basically talking about how it is that God's triumph shows up in his life, and it is completely upside down and paradoxical. Rather than God's triumph looking triumphal or victorious um, or spectacular or interesting or wonderful in Paul's life, God's triumph shows up in his life in the same upside down way that God triumphs in the cross. Paul inhabits the victory of God in Christ 
through a life that endures joyfully humiliation and shame and suffering. So I discovered all that um, starting in the early 2000s when I was doing my PhD study. And in my reflections on all of that, I thought mainly in terms of how this notion of cruciformity, having, having a life shaped by the cross, shapes individual lives and how it might shape uh, relationships and all of that. And because Paul talks about the healing of ethnic division and conflict in chapter two, it did a, that, that started a lot of my reflection on the contemporary dynamics of race in America and race in our culture. And I feel like, um, my goodness, over the years, as I've just read and read and read and tried to learn as much as I can, uh, because I'm a white male in a culture that centers whiteness and maleness, it makes everything sort of appear normal to me. I I feel like, you know, not a week goes by that I have, you know, a, a new bottom drops out in my understanding. And I, I feel like I'm just a child in learning about all the dynamics that shape our culture. But I have tried to think through all of these various dimensions in that light. Um, when I first started teaching, my teaching career began in 2004, and I started teaching undergrads. And in so many ways, I loved it. Really had a great time teaching New Testament, basic Christian theology to uh, young evangelical people and getting to know them and learning more about their lives. And um, my, I felt that in those years, my family was blessed far more than any students were because we just loved getting to know college students. We, we just had such a great time. Um, as we got more involved in pastoral ministry on a on a team of pastors in sort of, you know, 2006, 2007 and onward, um, I began doing a lot more reflecting on how it is that the cross shapes pastoral ministry. And as I've mentioned before, uh, my friend Steve and I have been in, involved in, you know, long-term conversations about all of these dynamics. And he and I, our conversations just continued and deepened and widened and we saw the implications of these realities in so many aspects of church life and in pastoral ministry. And um, I began to notice that even in my teaching of undergrads to people that were not headed for ministry, so much of my thinking and reflection in classes was geared toward pastors and geared toward pastoral ministry. And I began to think, I just, I don't know that long-term I'm going to be personally satisfied in teaching, you know, just general Bible, general New Testament. Um, I began to hunger to be teaching solely pastors, people who were headed for ministry. And in 2011, uh, my dream job came about and uh, ended up getting this job in Grand Rapids at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. And so we moved up here at that time, and that's what I've been doing exclusively, teaching people that are headed for ministry, um, you know, a lot, lot of counseling students, people who have counseling ministries and churches or who are going to be professional counselors. But for the most part, teaching people who are headed for pastoral ministry or who are already in pastoral ministry. So just to say, my thinking about Paul and about this central notion that runs through his letters, cruciformity has been moving toward considering the lives of pastors and ministry modes in churches almost exclusively over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. And uh, 
I've had so many thoughts. I've learned so much. A lot of this was learned in person, in my own life and relationships with fellow um, people who were in church leadership alongside of me or who I was alongside. And uh, so many of these dynamics just became clear. And I began to see that on the pages of his letters, Paul has so much to say about ministry, so much to say about pastoring, so much to say about caring for communities and um, the the specific ways that pastoral ministry needs to be carried out for pastors and for churches to enjoy together the resurrection and life-giving presence and power of God in Christ and by the Spirit. Um, One of the main things that I learned is that for Paul, the mode in which we conduct ourselves is just as important, if not more so, than anything that comes about as a result. The mode of our community lives must be in the shape of the cross for us to enjoy God's resurrection presence. And that is something that I think gets lost in so much of American ministry, which is oriented around uh, spectacle, oriented around what will be attractive to people, oriented around uh, what is interesting or what makes us look competent um, or makes us look attractive. And so, so much of what I have learned, I've been excited to share and to talk about. So, as I've said, because I need to write some of this up for Nijay and his wonderful, very kind invitation, I'm happy to sort of ram some thoughts together and bring some of this together, um, hoping that some of it makes some sense and uh, will result in something I can send to Nijay in a couple of days. Uh, The heart of the book is Paul's conversion as a pastor. And that is an idea that I uh, got from N.T. Wright from his book, What St. Paul Really Said, which uh, just a small book, um, but for me was so formative at a certain point in my understanding. And it might sound odd that Paul went through a conversion of his ministry imagination, but for Paul, before his conversion and after, the goals of his ministry never changed. Paul would have not Paul would have understood himself to be in ministry before he was converted. He was serving the one true God, the God of Israel, the God who was the creator. He uh, was bringing about God's ends on earth. And the one thing that consumed his thoughts, his prayers, drove his life, the one thing was the resurrection. That is, Paul was seeking to bring about God's resurrection life on earth. And in Paul's imagination, resurrection meant just the holistic mode of the flourishing of the kingdom of God that Israel was expecting. Israel was the recipient of the promises of God, that God was going to return someday and um, heal their land, drive out the Romans, establish the kingdom of God, and bring about God's universal order of flourishing with Israel exalted among the nations and experiencing uh, God's order of plenty. And Paul had been convinced that if he could be involved in an effort to make uh, the whole of the nation as Torah observant as he was, he and his uh, Pharisaic cohorts, if he could make, if he could uh, bring about a nation of Torah observant people who were 
obedient to the one true God, then God would be moved to pour out resurrection on Israel. God would be moved to save, to redeem Israel, to bring in the fullness of the kingdom, to drive out the Romans, to liberate God's people from their oppressors and bring in the fullness of the kingdom. That was Paul's aim. And so basically, looking back on that mode of life before his conversion, Paul could see that it was a mode of life oriented around coercion. He was coercing God to bring about salvation. And of course, that meant that he was coercing others, people who were not as as, uh, committed to God's word and to God's glory as Paul was, Paul would have considered a sinner. These are people that need to be coerced or cajoled or browbeaten into being Torah observant because my goodness, resurrection is at stake. The salvation of our people is at stake. And Paul became a forceful person using verbal violence and physical violence. His ministry in seeking to bring about God's purposes was oriented by power. Um, And Paul was caught up in a number of other pursuits as well. He talks in Galatians 1 about how he was outstripping all of his contemporaries in um, a zealous form of Judaism. Uh, So he was involved in ministry competition. He was seeking prestige, uh, seeking to establish himself as a godly person, thinking that the opinion of people in his social circles would also be eventually God's opinion of him when he arrived at the day of the Lord. So he was involved in building Uh, social capital, social prestige, seeking to establish for himself a secured identity at the very center of God's people. And that had him involved, as he talks about in Philippians 3, in a pursuit of accumulating credentials. He inherited a great pedigree from his parents that set him up very well in that quest, but he also was striving to add to it. So he talks about all of the uh, social capital he had accumulated by having a very impressive set of credentials. So that was the quest that Paul was wrapped up with before his conversion. And what I find so helpful in laying that out is that I think that these are some of the, the very pursuits that so many pastors get wrapped up into in American Christian life today. Um, I know that many people get involved in ministry because they love God, they love God's people, they want to seek to bring about God's flourishing for the communities to which they've committed themselves. But it's so easy to get so committed to that sort of ever so elusive goal that we adopt ministry modes that are characterized by frustration um, or coercing people or Uh, manipulation of other people to be involved in certain ministries or to undertake certain ministry efforts. There are just loads of temptations to adopt those modes of ministry um, on the part of pastors. And people who are not involved in ministry might be surprised at that sort of thing or surprised that that's actually the case. But pastors know these realities well. And I don't blame pastors for this. It's the structure of how ministry is oriented, especially in this country, but in the West and in many parts of the world. The structures of how we do ministry don't lend themselves to pastors having lives of flourishing and fruitfulness and rest. They sort of um, kind of block pastors in to modes of life that are characterized by uh, frustration and anger, 
burnout is a major reality in ministry. And just to say, Paul knew all of that reality very, very well. This is one of the reasons why, um, I think that this brings great explanatory power for why Paul ended up persecuting the early Christians. Um, Remember, Paul as a Pharisee was involved in an effort to generate Torah faithfulness on the part of people in Israel. And um, Paul would have been one of these Pharisees that would have checked out Jesus um, during Jesus's ministry. In the gospel accounts, you've got loads of Pharisees sort of coming up to Jesus, listening in, checking him out. Um, This group of people that are completely committed to the salvation of Israel and to God pouring out resurrection. My goodness, if there's ever a figure that arises that seems like he might be an agent of God's kingdom rule, they're going to want to know. This is what they're wrapped up in day in, day out. So I don't think you can prove this, but it's sort of a sanctified speculation to imagine that Paul is one of these Pharisees that are among Jesus's audiences interested in what he has to say. But Paul knows for sure that Jesus is not an agent of God's kingdom rule. When Jesus is put to death, but not only put to death, he's hung on a tree. And for Paul, someone who had the entire Old Testament memorized, likely by the letter, immediately his concordance mind runs to Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So Paul knows for sure what God's opinion of Jesus is, and that is that he is cursed. He is damned. This figure has no connection whatsoever to the purposes of the God of Israel in redeeming and saving Israel. But when this movement springs up, centered around this figure of a bunch of people, like this massive outbreak in Jerusalem of Jesus followers, people gathering in the temple daily, and many more being added to that group, uh, along with loads of people from the Pharisees, along with loads of people from the priestly class. Paul can't believe it. He's just beside himself and his energies to sort of stamp this thing out and bring about a Torah observant, uh, God-cursed person rejecting movement increases. So Paul has to stamp out this movement because in his view, they are increasing the number of sinners in the land making that promise of resurrection increasingly distant. So that explains um, the pursuit that Paul is on. And of course, this is just consuming his mind day and night. Um, Think about the radical revolution that would have taken place in Paul's mind when he actually gets that vision on the Damascus Road, where he sees the risen and exalted Christ on, on the on God's throne. God has exalted this figure to his right hand. And I, it's, it's a, I don't know, it's just incredible to think about, on one hand, how everything fell into place for Paul, but on the other hand, how nothing but questions were raised that I don't know how long it would have taken him to figure things out. I don't imagine an absolute immediate reversal like uh, some others do. I think this would have taken some time for him to think through However, um, Paul would have known resurrection has taken place, and God has vindicated this figure, this person that Paul had considered cursed 
by God, this person that Paul would have considered a sinner um, outside the bounds of God's people, this person that um, Paul would have seen as standing in the way of God's salvation, God has vindicated all of his claims. Everything that Jesus would have claimed about himself, God has said yes to all of that. This person is the one. This is the way that resurrection works. And now, you know, that would have raised some questions in Paul's mind. How does resurrection happen to one person, but not happen to the whole of God's people? So Paul would have come to see that um, there are sort of stages in which God's resurrection plan work out. First with this one person, then with uh, the entire community of people who are loyal to that figure are going to be filled with the resurrection presence of uh, God in Christ by the Spirit. And then a future resurrection. So the, the future day of the Lord that Paul had been hoping for, that's still hanging out there in the future. That future day of Christ is still out there where it's not going to be merely the God of Israel uh, standing uh, as the judge. It's going to be the Lord Christ, who is the embodiment of the God of Israel. And of course, uh, God's new name is now God, who is the father of Jesus. So, so many revolutions go through Paul's mind when he comes to see all this, especially about how to carry out ministry, how to actually serve the purposes of the one true God. So, rather than seeking to coerce God, or rather than seeking to coerce sinners or fellow Israelites, resurrection has already happened. So, nobody needs to twist God's arm to bring about salvation. I think that this is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 2 when he talks about how um, this salvation is not from works, uh, but is only by God's grace. That is, it is not through the accumulation uh, or the sort of the cultivation of a nation of Torah observant people that are going to so move God so that he'll pull the lever of salvation and unleash resurrection presence on Israel. That's not how God saves. God saves purely by his mercy and only by his grace. It doesn't arise from human efforts. So Paul gives up coercing God and he gives up coercing others. He also gives up sort of labeling outsiders as sinners. Paul's in, entire Torah-centric worldview labeled Jesus as a sinner. And God had vindicated that figure. That means in order to be um, close to that figure, in order, to, in order to be close to Jesus, in order to be like an associate or be considered someone who will be thought of by God along with Jesus Christ, that means taking one's place as a sinner, as an outsider to God's people, as somebody who is despised and marginalized and oppressed. That now becomes Paul's identity rather than cultivating a place at the very center of God's people where he um, finds exaltation and social capital and social approval, now he finds himself at the margins. I mean, my goodness, think about the implications that open up for that just for general Christian identity. So much of what um, I was talking about earlier with uh, reference to Heather McGee's book, uh, so much of my inherited culture sort of envisioned itself at the very center of God's approval, the center of righteousness, the defenders of righteousness. And we had all kinds of ways of seeing people at the margins 
uh, whose lives were marked uh, by pain or by, you know, some kind of socially uh, disapproved identity marker, whatever it might be. And of course, at the very periphery are you know people of different ethnicities, different religions, different gender orientations, um, different family structures, broken family units. Um, my inherited culture is the recipient of a lens of a kind of a perverted holiness and righteousness that imagines ourselves at the center and everybody else at the periphery. That was Paul's imagination as well. And because he now sees that's, that Christ is out there at the periphery, that's where he wants to be. So he's no longer seeking to build uh, an impressive set of, creden of credentials that will be impressive to his inherited culture. He is now, uh, he now sees those, as he says in Philippians 3, as crap, as human waste. These are all now things that stand in the way of him getting to where Jesus is. He talks in Philippians 3 about how he has suffered the loss of all things, and he's talking about his credentials and his privileges. He has suffered the loss of all things so that he may gain Christ, so that he may be where Christ is, so that he might be found in Christ at the day of Christ. And where is Christ? He's out there on the margins along with the rest of the sinners, according to Paul's inherited, biblically-oriented theologically accurate, God-glorifying worldview. That inherited worldview marginalized Jesus. And so Paul, um, so for Paul, it has to marginalize him. And so he's happy to go to the margins. And circling back, that's why um, Paul can celebrate in Ephesians 3 that he's actually incarcerated. Not that it's pleasant, um, but it's a socially shameful situation that makes his life look a whole lot like that rotting corpse on the tree through which God transformed the cosmos. So for Paul, a faithful minister will have a life that looks as much as the, the suffering and dying Jesus as possible. So Paul's entire ministry mode just went out the window, no longer wrapped up in modes of competition. Uh, you'll notice that when Paul writes his letters, um, I think all of them but two are written from Paul and Paul and Timothy, Paul and Epaphroditus. Paul writes uh, as part of a ministry team. And in our imaginations, we've lifted up Paul to be sort of like, you know, we have executive pastors in our churches and, you know, senior pastors. And we have a sort of a staff arrangement, um, you know, because the way that we envision the lives, the corporate lives of corporations have had far more of an effect on how we think about being the people of God uh, than the dynamics that we find in the New Testament, where there's no ranking. The great Apostle Paul is part of a team, and there's no ranking. In fact, uh, Paul is at pains to, to put himself at the lowest place whenever he talks about other people. He's a slave. That has all the socially shameful connotations as it does in our culture. He's an incarcerated person. And I talk about empowering and weakness that Paul has a number of other others of these. Um, he's a wet nurse. He's a woman in labor. Uh, he's a nursing mother. So he sees he, when Paul talks about his apostleship, he doesn't lift himself up as this great apostle that we like to make him to be. He speaks about himself far differently. 
and he is usually associating himself um, either alongside of his ministry associates as sort of co-slave, co-servant, co-soldier, or he is situating himself underneath as a helper, a supporter, someone given responsible care. Um, Yeah, that's another notion that... um, has this whole project has, has challenged me to rethink the whole thought of apostolic authority. We're in an age that, and this goes so much along with maleness and uh, becoming communities of power and control. We talk so much about authority. Uh, Paul has relatively little to say about all of that, which again might challenge the way that we orient our communities, but it would challenge them in ways that would actually bring about our increased enjoyment of God's resurrection presence, thinking a lot more in terms of partnerships rather than, um, you know, chains of command, uh, like in the military or like in corporate cultures. Anyway, Paul's mode of ministry radically changed because his understanding of God um, now was seen through the radically different lens of the crucified risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why I talk a lot about how the cross uh, shaped Paul's ministry because it shaped, it reshaped Paul's understanding of God um, because he had a radically transformed conception of who Jesus was and of who Jesus is and how the very life of Jesus is reproduced in the communities that Paul serves. Um, There's a number of other there's a number of other things that I thought were fascinating as I discovered in this this whole journey. And one of those um, is just social media. And this never struck me like it did recently. The only way that we know Paul, aside from the book of Acts and some talk about him uh, down the road a bit uh, from Paul's era, the only way that we know this person from history is his letters. That is the social medium of letter writing. So of course, Paul knows about social media. And it's interesting to see the many dynamics that that unfold as he reflects here and there about um, the dynamics that are introduced by relating through a social medium. And one of those that I talk about in the book is the whole notion of image maintenance. And this is one of the key dynamics that is going on in social media. That is, it's a way for us to sort of create an image and to um, cultivate that image. We, We each have a public image that we put out there on social media, and we're able to sort of curate that. And in an attempt to kind of manage how other people perceive us, and to manage how other people think of this. And tragically, that's sort of, you know, what we've all sort of fallen into, this mode of life that we've all fallen into in the modern era. This is not uh, how things went before the advent of social media. Before that time, this is interesting. Um, One of the interesting aspects of um, Daniel Borston's book, The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America, he talks about uh, the transition in from pre- previous days where we talked about reputation or character. And now we talk about image. And he talks about how when people become more well-known, um, you know, in a previous era, people would have hired a, a secretary to handle the flow of information or to handle sort of like people's 
uh, demands on their time or their attention. Now, and this is so, this is back in the 60s that he's writing, so it seems archaic. People hire press secretaries to manage one's public image, to sort of take care, to sow among the public a way of seeing a kind of a person. So people put up press releases or um, you know, seek to kind of clean up uh, not so great news and put out great news. Even if there's nothing that has happened, people issue press releases to manage public opinion. Well, that's a reality that came about uh, through the course of the 20th century. And then with the advent of social media, this is something that all of us are involved with. We're all uh, maintaining our images. We're all cultivating our public image, which is just bizarro. And this same dynamic affects people in ministry. And so I just have a brief uh, meditation in the book about how Paul talks about the pitfalls of this. Uh, he has this really interesting passage in 2 Corinthians. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 12, where he's been drawn into talking about his credentials and boasting because there are all these other uh, false apostles that have arrived in Corinth talking about their great spiritual experiences and talking themselves up, where and, and at the same time downgrading Paul. And so Paul is sort of forced to boast and talk about himself, which is not what he wants to do. And this is just a fascinating little passage that runs counter to so much of the dynamics that have been inserted into our culture in an age of social media. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself. And he's, he's talking about himself. He's torturing himself to not talk about himself. But he said, I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. So he could talk about himself uh, because he's had some amazing, amazing spiritual experiences, but he'd far rather talk about his weaknesses because, as I was saying before, he formerly was wrapped up in that image cultivation, image maintenance rat race. And he has chucked the whole thing because it's, he sees that that whole pursuit has kept him from being identified fully with Christ, this shamed, marginalized figure whom God has vindicated. But he says, I, I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from speaking the truth. I refrain from boasting about myself so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. That final clause in, or that final phrase in um, in verse six is just so absolutely brilliant. I think it's pregnant with loads of possibilities for reflection on the part of people in ministry, but on the part of all Christians everywhere in a social media dominated age. That is, Paul is hesitant to actually speak the truth about himself because he's afraid that the Corinthians are going to think more of him than is really true. He's hesitant to tell the truth about himself because he's worried that the Corinthians might have a more inflated and exalted opinion of him than is really true. That is a thought. The grammar of that thought, the logic of that thought, runs 180 in the face of the whole point of social media. The whole point of social media is to actually cultivate, among other people, thoughts about ourselves that are not warranted. 
to create in other people um, an image of who we are that is more exalted than is really true. And the same, the same dynamic is something that catches pastors up, ministry figures, um, Bible scholars, anybody who sort of seeks to build a platform. The dynamics of inauthenticity are just laced in that whole pursuit. It is really, really dangerous. Um, and the danger is we just become inauthentic people. We become people that can't expose our weaknesses. We become people who are afraid of our weaknesses rather than people who embrace our weaknesses and who um, are fearless when it comes to cultivating relationships uh, that are genuine and that are authentic and where we can open ourselves up to one another and be manifest as people who have lives that are just like everybody else's. There are no, there are no figures who are like super Christians or who have it all figured out. Anybody who says otherwise is selling something. Anyway, I, I think that, I just thought that that passage is ripe for reflection about the dynamics of social media because Paul is specifically referencing there, oh, I did it. I hate that word reference used as a verb. It slipped in. This is the work of the enemy. Paul is specifically referring to there the dynamic of distance. He's far from them, and he they only know him through the person who's reading to them this letter. And so because they don't see his life day in and day out, they might end up having a more exalted opinion of him than is really true. Which brings up for me, I think, loads to think about and talk about about knowing ministry figures from afar. Knowing ministry figures from afar. This is so characteristic of our age where we don't, we may not be so in love with the pastor or preacher in our church, but my goodness, we will pay loads of attention to uh, someone that we can watch on YouTube or someone whose books we can read, uh, someone whose podcast we can listen to, and we can end up uh, believing the hype or thinking that they've got all the answers or thinking that they've got it figured out. That is really, really dangerous. And Paul knows about that reality as well. He talks in Galatians, or it appears that the situation in Galatians is such that the people in the Galatian churches are being seduced into rejecting Paul, into rejecting the gospel, and into sort of buying into this more predictable, understandable, uh, controllable gospel um, by switching ethnicities. And a bunch of teachers have arrived in uh, Galatia who are pointing to their attachments to these celebrity figures back in the Jerusalem church. And Paul does not have a connection to those figures, or the connection is very tenuous. And Paul talks in uh, Galatians 1, he keeps making reference in Galatians 1 and 2 uh, about those figures in Jerusalem, about those who seem to be something, those who appear to be pillars, those who seem to be. He mentions it four times. And that whole uh, that expression, those who seem to be, is Paul's way of expressing that reality of image. You people in Galatia have sort of bought this image that there are far away in that mega church there in Jerusalem, these celebrity pastoral figures that you want to get to know. The way that they frame things is the truth. And Paul knows 
This reality that to know someone from afar is to not know them at all. You only know them by reputation. Whereas Paul, Paul knows these people from experience. He's been with them. He had to crash in Galatia after being brutalized uh, on his first journey. And that was the occasion of the founding of the church. So in Galatians 4, Paul just pours his heart out to the Galatians and is like, my goodness, we had this amazing you know, relational experience. You cared for me. You nursed me back to health. I mean, how could you just turn on me like this for these people that you don't even know? You're being seduced by these hucksters that have arrived there in Galatia and have claimed this tenuous connection back to the mother church and all of its big time celebrity figures. Well, here's my connection to those figures. And he goes on to talk about his confrontation of Peter in the rest of Galatians 2. Anyway, just to say, I I didn't write about this in Power and Weakness, but there's something I've thought so much about. Oh, I think maybe I did mention it. Uh, because this was part of my journey 27 years ago or so. I also, along with many others, usually young men, uh, zealous young men, there's something about that. Uh, all, you know, these zealous young men who are followers of, you know, huckster figures like Jordan Peterson, there's something going on there. And um, uh, Pankaj Mishra in his book, Age of Anger, just lifts up the hood on that whole dynamic. But usually it's, um, you know, zealous young men respond to the call of some distant, you know, celebrity figure who promises to have put it all together. And, uh, I followed one of these figures. I went to seminary and after a couple of years discovered along with a lot of other people that uh, the emperor is not as well clothed as we had imagined. When you know somebody from afar, you don't know them. You see your pastor's life week in and week out and uh, your pastor's family life and how their spouse treats them, how they treat their spouse. You see people in relationships those are the ways that you build credibility over time. Those are the ways that you regard somebody, someone with credibility over a period of years. But just to say, I think Paul is very well acquainted with that whole reality of knowing someone from afar. And I think his opinion would be, you don't know them. And even for those people who know me from afar, um, Paul is a bit tortured at times, like in 2 Corinthians, about having to send a letter, about having to relate through social the social medium of letter writing. It's not as good as presence. It's not as good as a person's presence over a period of a year or more, which was not atypical of what Paul would have done. So it's very easy uh, to fall into illusions about people that we think that we know. Um, if you've listened to this podcast and you've enjoyed it, you don't know me. You don't know me. If there's been something that has been beneficial, that's great. Uh, but don't read more into it than is really there. Um, one of the other things that I think is really fascinating in thinking about Paul, I didn't put this in the book, but I uh, talk about this in a Christianity Today uh, article that I wrote about 10 years ago or so about the illusions. Uh, yeah, the article was titled, uh, The Paul We Think We Know. I think, yeah, The Paul That We Think We Know. And... Um, one of the illusions that we have about Paul is that he's this really powerful figure. You know, we 
we see the great preacher on YouTube or, or, you know, at a stadium rally or something like that, the great preacher. And we imagine that Paul must have been just like that, that he was a powerful preacher. Well, he wasn't. He was this probably in some ways ornery, decrepit fellow that was not all that easy on the eyes and um, whose rhetorical abilities were not impressive at all. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul says, I know what some of you are saying about me there in Corinth. His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. His speaking is contemptible. He's this unimpressive person that you can't even hear in the back. And we're sitting here in a living room. I can't even hear him. So uh, don't, don't imagine that Paul is this uh, powerful, impressive figure in the pages of the New Testament. He wasn't at all. And that, um, that provides some challenges. The powerful figures on the pages of the New Testament are people like Barnabas, who's everywhere in the drama of the early church. And Peter and James and John, these are the biggies. And uh, one of the things that always interests me is that in Acts 13, remember, in the narrative of Acts, uh, Paul's conversion is recorded in Acts 9. And um, in my opinion, at about verse 26 or so, when, uh, when Paul... Uh, returns to Jerusalem for Damascus. I think that that, I think that that there's a three-year gap there, and um, it would have taken some time for Paul to sort of establish himself as any kind of a figure in the early church. Not that he would have actually cared, um, but in Acts 13, so four chapters later in the narrative that Luke unfolds, uh, Luke lists, and this is about. 12 year, 12 and a half years after uh, Paul's conversion, Luke lists uh, the people who are sort of serving the church in Antioch, where Paul, which becomes Paul's home church. And he lists uh, about five or six people before he ever gets to this figure called Saul. And he talks about, you know, Lucius and Niger and several others. And there's this guy named Saul. So, Paul would have no time for the ways that we have turned him into this powerful, impressive figure. In fact, he gives basically um, you know, the heart of his ministry philosophy in 1 Corinthians 2, when he talks to uh, the Corinthians who very much had the same orientation to ministry and to life that has affected Americans you know, in our uh, entertainment-saturated age and in our uh, age where we exalt people with prestige and credentials and impressiveness and all the rest. Paul says, on the contrary, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he's not talking about his subject matter. He's talking about his personal carriage the way he embodied himself, the way he, um, the way he cultivated his presence. Uh, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, he was daily carrying around in his body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in his body, because that's Paul's conviction. Um, God pours out resurrection presence and power where people's lives and communities take the shape of the cross. 
So Paul did not want to know anything when he was with the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his ministry mode, which he goes on to say, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And a passage like that has got to find its way into the far corners of not only our understanding of Paul, but our understanding of ourselves, of the shape of our of our communities, so that our communities take the shape of the cross. And for those of us who are in ministry, uh, that has to find its way into the far corners of how we imagine ministry and how we practice ministry. Um, all so that uh, God and Christ is actually doing a work among our communities, not the American dynamics of what is impressive and what we think is powerful. Because what we think is powerful often marginalizes the power and presence of God. Um, what we imagine is weak, creates the possibility that God will show up in our communities to bless and to renew and to redeem. Well, there's so much more that I want to talk about, about Paul's pastoral ministry. Um, I think I've arrived at the heart of what I'm going to write up for Nijay. Appreciate him and appreciate uh, the way that uh, he's really a world-class New Testament scholar, all-around super person, committed to the church, but also uh, is very creative about the ways that he promotes uh, the work of his colleagues. And I, I've been a beneficiary of that, and uh, I'm grateful for his friendship. Anyway, um, my book, Power and Weakness, would be a great book for anybody in ministry to read. It'd be great for pastoral staffs to read it, discuss it, think about how it can be um, helpful for you in your ministry and in your church. And really, I think it'd be great for anybody in a church for how to navigate relationships and see a way forward uh, inhabiting the gracious reign of King Jesus. Well, today's an overcast day in some ways, but for March, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.